0: You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne.
1: Hi, and welcome to Radiotherapy with me, Dr. Mel. Joining us on the show today, we have some of the biggest names in medicine. First up, we will be speaking with oncologist Professor Miles Prince. Now, in the two decades that I've been doing radiotherapy, I don't think we have ever had a professor on the show who has straddled both banks of the era. Now, testament to his stature, Miles has a chair at both Monash and Melbourne universities. He is Professor Director of Molecular Oncology and Cancer Immunology at Epworth Epworth Healthcare and Director at the Centre for Blood Cell Therapies at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre. That would be a very long name tag at conferences. Now, the last time I saw Miles, I was an intern and he was the admitting officer (laughs) at the Alfred Hospital. This is a long time ago. It was 2am and he was working his way through patient number 7 of 12 for the night and he was looking fresh as a daisy. Miles went on to an illustrious career in medicine and academic stardom I went into the arts Today we'll be asking Miles about the revolutionary cancer treatments that are changing not just the face of oncology but our understanding of the immune system and the body as a whole Absolutely fascinating listening Now, there is a reason Dr. Nick Carr is one of Melbourne's busiest GPs. Sure, he's uber-popular, and he has a queue a mile long outside his consulting room. And yes, he knows all about every bodily organ and how to examine it the old-fashioned way. And yep, he's involved in clinical guideline committees and various action groups. But beyond all that, Nick is just a really great guy. He's the sort of friend you want to bring along to dinner parties to impress the host that you kind of actually know him. This week, Nick will be taking us gingerly by the hand, gingerly, and walking us through the uh, latest measles alert in Melbourne and also uh, the listeria alert as well, I am told. And everyone's favourite pen, nurse EpiPen will be joining us. Friends of the show will know that EpiPen is an epidemiologist and a nurse manager, hence the name EpiPen, and that she is perennially the most cheery person you will ever ever, mate. Sunday mornings are all the more sunny for her presence. Look at her smiling. at I me mean, she can't say anything because her mic's off. All this and some music for the next hour on Radiotherapy here on Triple R. Doctor, doctor, give me
0: the news. I got
1: Nurse Epiphan is asking why her mic is off, so you can't talk. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Nurse Epiphan.
2: Good morning, listeners. Beautiful. And, and, and I have to say, Professor Miles Prince is also, one of his uh, qualifications, is all-round absolutely gorgeous guy. As
0: well? yeah. We've got two gorgeous ri- guys in the studio.
2: Two seriously gorgeous guys. I wouldn't have missed today's show for anything.
0: Right. Yeah. So I'm, um, I'm glad, you've got Dr. Mal. I'm glad we've got Dr. Mal and Dr. Miles Prince coming as <laughs> the two gorgeous guys. <laughs> oh, I'm inter- um, Dr. I'm Nick. I'm interested, Dr. Mal, you described yourself as going straight into the arts. Is that how you now describe no, I didn't, psychiatry? I didn't,
1: no, I didn't say straight into the arts. I said, well, I, said I am into the arts because um, that's where I'm currently situated. Hey, listen, I was looking through the paper, as is my wont yesterday, and I was absolutely blown away by this. Milo, one of my favourite drinks... Uh, Has uh, or Nestlé, the maker of Milo, has voluntarily uh, taken off the four and a half star health rating um, because it is a very, very sugary drink. Have you ever seen this? Have you ever ever buy Milo? Ever drink Milo? Got kids that have Milo? I think
2: no. I used to drink it, but I used to see these little white. Little crystally things in it. I'm sure. I'm I wonder su- what they I'm, are. I'm sure. I used to think it's sweet when I drank it, so I'm not surprised. But has Milo itself taken? Yeah. So Nestle
1: has has voluntarily are
3: responsible.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, this this kind of uh, came after a vigorous, probably uh, three month long debate in our house where our kids were saying. But dad, mum, it's got four and a half stars. It's good for us. And, you know, put it on top of ice cream and just spoon it out, you know, with a, with a tablespoon. And the, the, the kind of the issue there was that um, the health star rating, as I understand it, is for how the substance is prepared. So if you mix Milo with skim milk, then it's got four and a half star ratings, Two table, two teaspoons, I think. But a lot of people don't have Milo that way. And so it's kind of... It's not actually four and a half stars most of the time. So I was thinking, what do I do? What do we do as parents and as individuals to have less sugar? Because there's been lots of reports coming out lately, especially you know, with the the, 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 the um, postulated sugar tax to decrease the obesity and diabetes and so forth. What do you do to decrease the amount of sugar you have and your kids have?
2: I'm a a Nutella policewoman, so it's banned from our house. So you can ban things, but isn't it possible that that, um, our children will find other substitutes that'll be sweet until it's shown to have minus stars on it?
1: You're the second person in two days to tell me they banned Nutella. Um, I tried, I just can't. Uh, the, the the problem the, the what you're talking about there I think EpiPen is that access is one of the key determinants of use. If you have if you have something near you, then you are go- more likely going to go to it. So if you've got you know soft drink in the fridge or chocolate in the cupboard, you're more likely to it. Obviously, mm-hmm. so the the trick is not to bring it into the house if you so rightly done. Mm. So what do your kids go for when you in the
0: cellar? Oh, gosh. A nice healthy serve of broccoli bar <laughs> Exactly, or
2: muesli, <laughs> nice Carrots. oats. I think, <laughs> I,
0: think, I think the whole sugar thing shows how fashions change. Yeah. When my kids were little, which is now, well, over 20 years ago, um, sugar wasn't on the radar. We didn't huh. talk about sugar. <laughs> Embarrassingly, I now confess, I used to go to the supermarket. I'd come home with a 24-pack of soft drink cans. No way, you. Yes, I did, because back then we weren't as aware, and it was, in fact, our dentist who said, your kids should not be having those sugary drinks, it's bad for their teeth. So the first warning I had was not a health warning around obesity or other harmful effects of sugar, but was from the dentist. And the dentist was very clear that sugary drinks and kids' teeth do not go well Mm -hmm. together. That was when I stopped buying the the 24 packs of of soft drinks. But it's since then that we've become much more aware of the Mm -hmm. overall dangers Mm -hmm. of sugar.
2: So, how long ago yeah. was it that the dentist alerted you to this?
0: Health so, this is over 20 years ago. Yeah, I, mean, 20 I think years. the dentists have known this forever. Yes. Uh, they may be a little slow in getting the message out into the community. And of course, now we're much, much more aware of the risks of sugar generally.
1: Well, I've been trying to cut down the amount of sugar I'm having. I started about two months ago, you know, during the summer holidays, stupid time to do it. And, uh, you know, stopped putting sugar in tea and coffee and stopped trying to have so many kegs, blah, 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 blah. And I've never felt tighter. <laughs> i thought, I thought this would be a fantastic thing I well, think like, it might have something to do with me going to bed later and getting up earlier
0: yeah. But aside from that I will <laughs> have to confess before someone from my workplace rings up I do have a secret stash, which is not secret <laughs> at all Because every member of staff knows what it is Of the chocolate for my afternoon cup of tea and a piece of chocolate So there we go, I've laid it on the line Do
1: you know some of the stuff that uh, some friends of ours are doing with their kids We ran at their place yesterday They, ju- they fill up a carafe of water and put in um, uh, herbal tea, just herbal tea bags and it's got this nice sort of strawberry smelling flavour and it tastes nice and that way the kids have moved away from their soft drinks onto something healthier, which is not just plain water. It's kind of a little bit flavoured but it's got no sugar. And I thought, that's a really smart thing to do.
2: There's some great educational tools and I can't quote where they're from, but I have seen a picture where they have a can of Coke and then next to it they have a glass and how much sugar is in it. So those educational tools that we can all appreciate uh, and in sort of these... Graphical pictures of mm. how much the, your drink or food product equates to in teaspoons of sugar. I think for us adults
1: uh, who, uh, who um, maybe kind of think about our impulses a bit more than our adolescents sometimes, I think that works. But I think for kids, we've got to find some sort of substitute.
0: Well, I think sugar, like many things in diet and lifestyle, is habit. Yeah. Uh, and it's one of those things if as parents, we're aware right from the start, we don't get our kids used to it. It'll become much easier not to have to deal with the problem down the track. When I when I was little, we used to have the chocolate tin in the cupboard. And we were allowed to take something from the chocolate tin every evening. Um, now, my parents obviously brought it up in the 50s and 60s, perhaps not quite so aware that that was not a great thing to do. But that created the habit Of wanting sugar on a daily basis. If we start off with our kids with not teaching them that habit, it becomes much easier. If they get a piece of fruit or something after dinner instead of a piece of chocolate, probably a little healthier. But don't you think we're sort of holding our hand up against the tide? There is so much
1: sugar in every, like just even in tomato sauce. You know, there is so much sugar everywhere that we can try and do that at home. Do you think then that that's going to carry through? to what the kids do outside the
0: house. Your, your point was, I think, very important, that availability of yeah, substance okay. makes a huge difference to that substance use, whether it's cigarettes, alcohol, sugar, whatever yeah. it is. So I think all we can do as a family, as parents, is to try and reduce that availability, reduce reduce the reliance Of course, we'll never get rid of it completely. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. And, and I've threatened my son with any fillings. He has to pay for them. <laughs> oh, well, that's, <laughs> hardcore. So that's hardcore. Yeah, well, he's is that burning. why he's walking around with brown teeth? <laughs> <laughs>
1: It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, 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 I think just have, actually having the conversation with our kids, they get so bored with it. But I, I think we're slowly sort of chipping away that at least now they're a little bit more, con- more conscious. They might look at a label now, whereas, you know, a year ago they just sort of have whatever. They're a little bit more conscious of that whole thing.
2: And, and I think um, the older our kids get, the more they are looking after their bodies. Like I know my son yeah. was eating randomly, all sorts yeah. of things, but now he's nearly 20. He's really, he's out there socialising and he wants to look good. So he's exercising more. He's cut back on a whole heap of... of- He works in a pizza shop, so he doesn't eat pizzas anymore. He brings home the salads so and he's doing a bit of iron work and my daughter's running, so they do start... So
0: it's part of the whole health thing.
2: Yeah. And I think
0: that's a good point, Epi, because uh, it was actually my adult son who made me watch a thing called That Sugar Film, which I'd never heard of before, but I've watched that and if no-one's seen it before... I think that's its proper title, that sugar film. It's a real eye-opener about the effects of sugar and it certainly changed his attitude to eating sugar. Yeah, we're using the old, gee, your skin's looking so good since you've cut down on sugar. <laughs> <You> know, so, <laughs> ah, the old the narcissism, <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> the false dermatological <laughs> argument about <laughs> acne and sugar. That's not false, is it? Oh, this is a this is a vicious cycle that's gone in circles so many times. Sugar was thought to have no impact on adolescent acne all, right. all the way through my training. Right. And then the last 10 years, the dermatologists have turned around to say, oh, you know what, we think sugar probably does have an impact for some adolescents some of the time. Oh, okay, I'll stick with that one. With my kids.
2: You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia.
1: And uh, we welcome into the studio uh, Professor Miles Prince. G'day, Miles. Nice, uh, nice to have you in. Hey, can I ask you a question before you even say one word? So you can't even say one word. <laughs> <in>. <laughs> You're a professor at two universities. Do they call yeah. you Professor Professor, like Boutros Boutros Scarly?
3: <laughs> 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 professor Squared.
1: <laughs> I mean, that is quite exceptional, isn't it? I mean,
3: oh look, it's uh, it's because I work at two different a variety of hospitals, yeah. um, and I'm taking students, and you know take a lot of uh, MD students, um, postdoctoral students. You know, to get them through their courses, you have to be attached to both universities. Oh, okay. Very humble way of saying that. Okay, <laughs> now tell us what you do, Mark. So um, my job day to day is to look after patients with blood diseases, predominantly blood cancers, and uh, so I do that in two ways. I, I see patients, give them treatments, uh, and I'm also pretty heavily involved in research. And ultimately, my objective is to is to get new treatments. To patients with blood cancers and uh, new treatments, meaning largely the new era of treatments, which is immune-based therapies, yeah. uh, as well as what we call personalised medicine—medicines uh, that match with the particular mutations or abnormalities they have with their cancer—and uh, blood cancers really sort of lead the way in many of those can- in many of those treatments. Well, they have for, for a while,
1: haven't they? Wasn't it the 1960s where leukemias went from a almost fatal disease to a curable-ish disease? Is that right?
3: Yes. Yeah? Uh, what we found was that uh, the first chemotherapy drugs were directed towards patients, particularly childhood yeah. Uh, leukemias. Yeah. And
1: uh, w- w- just before we get into the immunotherapies, what got you into hemoncology? Because I can even remember... Years and years and years ago, when we were, uh, you know, both uh,
3: much younger, you were fascinated by it. What got you interested? I can remember you too, Doctor yeah. Mel, yeah. very yeah. well. <laughs> we won't go into that right now. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, I think what what struck me is you can get access to the blood very easily and you can start to see changes. And so when I became interested in research, I discovered that uh, blood cancers were really a good way because you could see real time what the changes were and they're good ways of studying it because, you know, if someone has a tumour, Uh, which is inside the body, you can't get, you know, you can't get access Mm. to it, whereas getting access to blood, so you can actually do a lot of research Mm. on just by a blood sample. Mm
1: -hmm. Okay, so you were talking before about the new immunological treatments. I mean, to, to my mind, and when I was, you know, doing cancer treatments years and years and years ago as an intern... The the treatments were, were very very toxic and caused a lot of side effects and chemotherapy was was quite an ordeal. That is undergoing a change from what I understand. Yeah, look, it's
3: being tackled in, in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I um I often refer to it as 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 the sort of the moonshot. Mm-hmm. of um, why we're talking about curing cancers. Mm-hmm. You know, what's the difference now mm-hmm. than what perhaps 20 years ago? Because, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the, the term moonshot comes from, you know, the, uh, JFK's mm-hmm. we're going to land on the moon. Um, and then, you know, Richard Nixon in the 70s said we're going to cure cancer, but he failed because fundamentally we didn't have the pieces all coming together. Because what's happened in the last few years is we've sequenced the human genome, you know, knowing every amino acid along the way, the trillions of bits that make up what I call the music sheet of of, of the gene. Uh, if you can imagine that, you know, mutations occur, like removing or changing notes in that in that symphony that's mm-hmm. our genome. That's happened. Uh, we've got huge uh, advances in computerization. So nowadays, I can we'll see patients and we'll sequence parts of their genome within a few days, what used to take years. And the reason is because of the huge computational capacity. We just wouldn't have been able to assess those trillions of bits of information. Mm-hmm. And the third is that uh, we've got new new ways of, of finding designer drugs, so fitting the keys to the, to the locks. Mm. So these locks are discovered, and then we can very quickly look at new ways of, of looking at what is... Uh, is basically chemistry
0: mm-hmm. of finding new drugs. So, Miles, I wanted to ask you, when you say you sequence part of the genome, what differences do you find with people that have blood cancers and how does that actually help in terms of treatment? So, blood cancers are, are unusual
3: in that we, when we think of mutations, there are really two sorts of ways you can get a mutation. One is just spontaneous, bad luck. What happens with blood is that we are producing about a trillion blood cells a day, a, mistake. a trillion cells. So, a yeah. so, There's so, a little margin of yeah.
0: error there.
3: Yes. Well, that's exactly what happens. You oh. get mistakes. Normally, our body has the capacity to absorb those. And in fact, the immune system can, can often remove those spontaneous abnormalities. And then there's the mutations that come from outside. So sun exposure, smoking, dietary. And so there's big differences. When you look at what we call exogenous mutations so somebody who's been baking in the sun all their lives and they get melanoma the number of mutations in something like melanoma or the number of mutations in, blood, in a bladder cancer because of smoking uh, or lung cancer from smoking is, is very very large and so often personalised medicine targeting those mutations is not that effective because there's so many of them and they're there because they've been basically hit and bombarded by that exogenous whereas in blood cancers, you've got these spontaneous mistakes that are made. And so a blood cancer like some of the leukemias may only have one or two mutations. And so that's where their Achilles heel is. And that's why they can be targeted. So there are other cancers, many other cancers out there that do occur from spontaneous mutations. And that's what we're trying to discover.
0: So I just want to be really clear to make sure nobody misunderstands this. So there are cancers triggered by things that are lifestyle related, like smoking, sunbathing, and that sort of thing. With the hematological, the blood cancers, we're not talking about that, are we? That's right. Is, yeah, it, is that's there anything important. related to lifestyle that triggers hematological cancers? Or is, it, or is it always just bad luck, something goes wrong with our system? Look, it's if there are, they're usually pretty weak. So we
3: know, for example, after the um, atomic bombs in Japan, there was leukemias. Uh, we know that certain pesticides can cause leukemias. So there are a few but it's, it's uh, the exception rather than the rule.
2: So I'm a patient in your room. I have known nothing about any of these cancers. And I ask you, Professor Miles, what, what's the immune system and why have I got a cancer and what's happened and how, how do you help people understand the immune system, basically? I think it's a tricky one to Yeah,
3: it is, it is. It's a tricky one, um, Nurse Epi. The... the blood system is fundamentally produced in the bone marrow which sits in the, in the vertebra and in the pelvis. So if you can imagine that that's like a, a honeycomb of all this blood, these trillions of blood cells being made. and the mo- most uh, important ones are the red cells which carry oxygen uh, and the platelet uh, and the uh, white cells which fight infection. So the job of a white cell is fundamentally to kill. So it's like the military, it kills. It kills bacteria or viruses that are coming into our body all the time, whether it's through the skin or whether we breathe or whether what we eat. And if you can imagine those white cells are there to kill, like the military. But like the military, there's an army, an air force, a navy, different white cells that kill in different ways. So ever since evolutionary-wise we were jellyfish, our immune system has progressively evolved. Initially, our immune response was just a general one. We were being attacked by poisons or chemicals in the deep sea. We would initiate the white cells would try and respond to that. Now, the immune system fundamentally is about recognising what is us and what is foreign. So the problem is that uh, it's incredibly, incredibly complex now because we not only have to, if we get an infection, the white cells, each of them, the Army, the Air Force, the Navy, is doing a slightly different thing. So we've got the front end soldiers, which are called neutrophils. They're, they're important, pretty stupid cells, but pretty important. They basically go to the, go to the area of infection where you've pricked your finger in, on a thorn or cut yourself in the garden. Go there and they blow themselves up and they produce toxins, which then fight the bacteria sort of front end. But then you've also got part of the immune system which which will remember everything. So remember when you had chickenpox because a human race wouldn't last very long if we kept getting chickenpox every week or if we kept getting the same old common cold uh, or more severe infections. So anything that you've been vaccinated against, measles, mumps, rubella, or anything you've been exposed to, the common cold, your body will remember. And then when it comes again, you can attack it very quickly. The problem that can happen is that cancers are very smart the default position of our body is to have a suppressed immune system because if it was overactive we'd get autoimmune diseases things like rheumatoid arthritis or lupus or even things like multiple sclerosis all which are important immune disorders when the immune system is too active so it's naturally being suppressed And what happens is cancers, as soon as they start to grow, first thing they do is they need more blood supply. So they start producing blood vessels and start bringing in nutrients to help feed them. And then they start to suppress the immune system. So it won't attack it. And the big explosion in the last few years has been about unlocking that and what we call unlocking that suppression of the immune system. So now we can start to drive the immune system against the cancers, and that's been this huge innovation. So l- l- let me understand this,
1: the When I, if I got a cancer, that cancer would find a way of turning off my immune system to stop it, the immune system fighting that cancer.
3: That's right. Yep. How does it do that? <laughs> well, it ultimately, it varies from different different cancers. But, and in fact, what we've been surprised by is the number of cancers that suppress the immune system. Okay. And how does it do that? Well, what it does is it goes back to the basics. So the, these are normal cells that have become mutated. So they have all along been having a relationship with the immune system for years, as, as, we've had a, as we've had a normal... Um, uh, as we've had a normal uh, uh, life t- span, mm-hmm. our immune system has been functioning and living with other cells in our body. Mm-hmm. And so all ha- what happens is when we get cancers, that immune system starts to be turbocharged, mm-hmm. and that, those cells start to be turbocharged and attack the immune system more readily. Mm-hmm. I, remember ye- I remember years ago, hang
1: on, so this is taxing my memory, uh, there was something called tumor necrosis factor, now, that was was that was something produced by was it tumours that stopped this? What, what what Hang on, remind me how it actually how this whole thing works because I remember tumour necrosis factor was a was it like a a chemical released by the body? And since we've discovered tumour necrosis factor, we've discovered a, a, a slew or a soup of other factors as well. Can you take us through some of those and how they're relevant?
3: So. I think the easiest way to think yeah. about this is how cells communicate with yeah. each other. So ultimately, a cell has a front door. Yeah. And so it, it to do something, it hears the knock on the front door, which is some sort of protein or uh-huh. chemical like this yeah. tumor necrosis factor. And there's a variety of things called interferons, interleukins, cytokines. These are all just big names yeah. for different communication uh, information. Right. So if you can imagine you know, there, that the, each of the cells has surrounding it in this soup all sorts of these proteins. And so what happens is that ultimately our body is trying to fight infections. So if you get attacked by the flu virus, yeah. the reason that you feel lousy is because it's not the virus doing it. It's your body trying to fight the virus. So what it tries to do is it tries to engage the army by releasing a whole lot of these things from within the cell mm-hmm. and these, and then that invigorates all the other uh, normal white blood cells so they get angry, uh, they get activated, they proliferate, they become more of them. So if you can imagine within a lymph gland, which is sits up mm-hmm. in the neck there uh, or anywhere around the body... These, when you get tonsillitis or you get a bacteria in there, it gets very, very active. And the reason you get a sore throat or you feel lump or it's tender in the neck Mm. is because those lymph glands are getting activated and ready to kill that bacteria. So what happens in cancers is that that's just a deviated deviation of the um, immune system. And so I like to think of it as a bit of a triangle. Mm. You've got inflammation. Autoimmunity, where the body's attacking mm-hmm. itself, and cancer, which are all sort of part of the if, at each point of that triangle, and they can it can go in one direction or another, depending on on the environment. When did we start thinking about the immune system in relation to treating cancers? Well, look, it's been thought about since even the eighteen hundreds mm. or even earlier. You mm. know, the, the concept that the body is constantly trying or has the capacity to fight, mm. but. We've really only had the technology to determine what the cells are since about the 1960s, 1950s, where we've found out, as I said, the different components of that military. We've we've always thought, okay, cells are there to kill bacteria, mm-hmm. viruses, but to divide up that army, air force, navy into bits, and and you can keep going, you know, even further and mm-hmm. further down into the into the platoons mm-hmm. and etc. Uh, the different subtypes. Mm-hmm.
2: So I can remember a theory about cancers starting off or being triggered by a virus. So I'm not sure that's quite the case. But there's this new um, idea of giving, injecting um, viruses to treat cancers.
3: Yep. So the thing I didn't mention um, to Dr Nick was that the other sort of external insult that can cause cancers is viruses Um, and that's been happening for years and years and years. Fortunately, it's, again, a relatively rare phenomenon, but the glandular fever virus um, can cause blood cancers, it can cause a variety of cancers, but we don't really understand why it doesn't cause it in everyone. It's only a tiny, tiny proportion that actually happens. And so it gets back to the question of could there be something within the individual that makes them more susceptible? But we're now turning that round and being able to use uh and, and use how viruses get into cells. So viruses are very clever. They will bind onto the cell and get into them and insert into the cell, into the DNA of the cell, their own little DNA. And so they're like a little Trojan horse. We can use that now to actually empower our immune system, these lymphocytes, to better recognise it. And that's actually what a new treatment recently just approved in the last six months by the by in in america so-called car t-cells which are uh patients own cells we take them out we insert a gene which then puts a a new docking station on the surface of the cell which can then specifically seek out and kill and it, it it cures leukemias in children it is a huge step forward. It's, it's a, a challenge because this is the ultimate in personalised medicine. This is extremely expensive. But like a lot of things in medicine, it starts off expensive. You've got to get it right later. But expensive... But if curative, it will save patients from a lot of treatments that, you know, toxic treatments mm. that, that uh, Dr. Mal said at the very start, mm. chemotherapy, when mm. he was doing it, it was about toxicity. Mm. Well, the most toxic treatment we can give someone is treating a child with acute leukemia. Mm. It's two years of, of heavy, heavy mm. chemotherapy. And if you can give them a one-off uh, gene-based therapy, which is gene therapy, it's, um, and which
0: cures it, um, you know, it's turned it on its yeah. head. I really want to reinforce something you said, Professor Miles, about um, the glandular fever, because in general practice we see glandular fever... All the time, <laughs> I don't yes. want people who've had their teenagers or themselves had glandular fever to think, "Oh my goodness, I'm going to be riddled with cancer tomorrow." Um, you correctly said the cancer following glandular fever is rare, and uh, while we see glandular fever on a regular basis in general practice, we almost never see cancer as a result. So while we know it can happen, I don't want people out there to be terrified of glandular fever and the possibility of cancer. The whole, the whole virus thing in cancer, of course, the, the, the classic. Example is with cervical cancer, mm-hmm. um, which is 100 percent virus triggered. Mm-hmm. Which is what, why we now have a vaccine to prevent that particular mm-hmm. cancer.
1: Miles, um, that is startling about uh, um, childhood leukemias, um, and I can see why it would currently be expensive to do that. You've got to get the person's cells, you've got to change alter the person's cells, and then inject it back into them. And I imagine there's some time pressure to do that as well. You have to, you'd have to do that fairly quickly. That's right. Yeah. So
3: it's it's it, so. As I was saying, um, Dr. Mel, it's a a question of how do we deliver these new sorts of treatments? And I sort of talk about... when I'm talking to government, I, I, I say, look, this is like when we discovered heart transplants or yep. lung transplants yep. in the 80s. Yep. You know, this is a total new wave. How are we going to deliver that to people? And so we need to go through the process of a new discovery. Yes, it's effective. And then the next step is delivering it as a, as a treatment. So,
1: so this is a paradigm shift. It's not just another chemotherapeutic agent.
3: It is a whole different way of killing cancers in the body so the term that's been coined is a living drug so that's the paradigm shift Mm. in thinking that this is a, a living drug yeah
2: So, I do get asked every now and again with with my patients that don't have spleens, what can they do to boost or encourage their immune system after chemotherapy, after they've had their spleen removed or, you know, what tips do you give patients after these sorts of treatments
3: or operations? Yeah, so look, it's tricky. Um, because ultimately this is a complex thing that you're trying to change the subtlety. Is it like trying to teach a te- teenager to, to modify their behaviour? Mm. You know, you can tell them constantly, this is what you should be doing or this is a generalised thing, but to get them to specifically change one activity, um, they can try and teach them to be nice, good people and you can have the best teenagers and uh, they just always keep doing the wrong thing, <laughs> like borrowing a car. Um, so, but So ultimately I think the two most important things are uh, exercise, uh, having a not exercising suppresses the immune system. I have seen a number of times with patients with low-grade lymphomas who've changed their behaviour, who have done a lot more exercise. Problem is is that a patient, there's a lot of patients who walk through my door who are very good and, and do exercise mm. and still get these problems. But I think it's important, and sleep. Getting adequate sleep. I think those are the two things. Food and stress, people ask me about all the time. And I have to say that other than a good diet, there's no specifics in food. Uh, A good general diet is
0: important. You mean loading yourself up with extra vitamins from from the chemist is not going to help? Absolutely not. <laughs> Thank you. It's a
3: very, very expensive way of, uh, as they say, expensive urine because it'll just excrete itself out. No, uh, it, the, it goes back to the basics. Uh, and uh, so people talk about the blood group diet and the high low, trying to starve it. I know you, we were talking about sugar before. The, those changes are too g- gross when you, uh, the the but but sleep. I think is really important. Mm, we know mm, that inadequate mm. sleep, uh, poor poor sleep. It's hard to change in some people. You are listening to Radiotherapy with Dr. Mal, Nurse
1: Epi, Ben, Dr. Nick, and our guest, Professor, Professor Miles Prince. Miles, I want to ask you a question, if I could, about the immune system. The great thing about this show is I can ask personal questions. I get these experts in, I can ask personal (laughs) questions. So a person very, very close to me, I won't say who, says, Mal, you are exercising too much. And because you are exercising too much, you are suppressing your immune system. Is that possible?
3: Uh, There's no evidence.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Really? I actually thought there was.
3: Okay. Uh, uh, Look, there's there's no... And look, it gets back to the issue of we're talking about something that is incredibly complicated. And the problem with examining anything out of the body, as soon as I take a blood cell out of the body, it's in an artificial environment. You can can, uh, push a test to go in a number of directions. So... uh, uh, Looking at you, um, Dr. Mel, I think there's plenty of room there.
2: (laughs) I'm not exercising (laughs) enough. Uh, Psychological impacts of cancers and how to um, help people... Um, deal with them so some people used to say oh you've got to stay on top of it you've got to stay positive you've got to fight the fight but there's some nice evidence to say that um, you are who you are and you have your own skills and history of can- of managing and, and and coping with cancer is what is that what do you sort of feel about that
3: yeah I think it's really important that people are able to uh, come to terms with what's going on in their head they, it is. there's a lot about being empowered, feeling in control and being able to do things that are positive. Uh, and I think that uh, it is critical for people to be able to manage the, the whole journey. And I, you know, I went to a beautiful lecture years ago of a, of a person who had cancer who climbed Mount Everest. And he said, if you see cancer like Mount Everest, that you want to beat it. And it's got to be it's going to be it's the wrong approach. You've got to live with it, work through it break it up into bits and bits and bits and then you'll get a, and and people to join you people you know I call it the waiting room effect people really want to help mm-hmm. but you know you can have my, my patients sit in the waiting room and they'll be sitting next to somebody who's full of great advice but they'll come in in tears because they've been told something that the other person thought was wonderful and helpful mm-hmm. but really mm-hmm. has just got them derail them so mm-hmm. one has to be you know I think it's I think it's people around people with cancer have to be aware that it's their journey it's really hard mm. and um you know it's more it's better for them to listen to the person yep. rather than constantly fi- giving them advice
0: there's a there's a very dangerous narrative i think around this that sort of positive and positivity around cancer because it also implies that you are somehow responsible and if you weren't positive enough mm. maybe that's mm. why the treatment hasn't worked mm. um uh, as far as i'm aware i think you touched on this epi there is no good quality research mm. to show that attitude has an effect on the outcome of cancer treatment is that correct miles i think that uh, there's the the most
3: destructive thing that one can do is to take a treat it in, in a negative fashion and positivity is it's good to be positive trying to Trying to control every element of it is the worst thing that you can do. You have to take good advice, and you do have to be, and you have to be positive. Miles,
1: well, just to bring it back to the biology for a moment, what you know, one of the the things that got me excited about having you on the show. Well, it's nice to see you again, but also hearing about these new immunological treatments. Because I remember hearing about a a, a woman, maybe it was five years ago, who had untreatable melanoma, and uh, she became part of a trial. And uh, lo and behold, six months later, after getting some immunological treatment, she was cured. Now, if you would have told a doctor that 20 years ago, you can cure disseminated melanoma, they would have said, nah, you know, you're dreaming. Is is that what we're looking at in a couple of years' time, of being able to treat incurable
3: cancer diseases? There's no doubt that the immune system is taking uh, is, is able to cure... Uh, cancers that we can't cure with standard chemotherapy Uh, such as what well melanoma is an example of of where we think we we certainly can't cure everybody but there's going to be combinations Um, i've i have um, some patients who uh, have have specific abnormalities with these uh, that uh, mutations that we found that show them specifically susceptible to these immune therapies and it works Um, we are Really, at the sort of Wright brothers end of this, you know, we've 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 got a long way to go yeah. in terms of the fine tuning, uh, you know, the. Uh, you know I've got no pr- I've got no doubt Dr. Mal that in 15 years time people will be saying to me oh God do I have to have immune therapy it's so tough <laughs> <laughs> you know? okay. isn't there something better yeah, yeah. you know because you know the the other side of all of this is that if you over stimulate the immune system you can goes back to that triangle mm. you can go the other way yeah. so there are side effects with these treatments as well but yes it is if like everything we start with the worst situations mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then we move backwards mm-hmm. Curing is a term which is about dying of something else. Mm-hmm. And there may be situations where we are, inverted commas, functionally curing people, like blood pressure. We, they, take their, they take their treatment and it's suppressed. That's a bit negative. Curing is when you die from something else. <laughs> 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 just joking. <laughs> to... uh, right. It's
1: been so fascinating. One of the things I'm interested in asking people, and we're going to ask you to hang around for another 15 more minutes if you can. Sure. But just before we let you go from your segment, what's something that you... Believed when you started medicine, or knew sort of in your core when you started medicine, but now years down the track, you've changed your mind about. It's a hard question, and without warning, too.
3: Yeah, the um, I think that um, you know I believed that if you really tried, and you could push people to the brink. And with with very aggressive treatments, yeah. you could cure a lot more people. Yeah. And um, I learned that big is not always better. That just because you increase the doses of treatments, give people high doses of chemotherapy or high that that's going to cure more people. It clearly t- chipping away at, at diseases can be far more effective. So um, yeah, I I, I I really was a believer in in delivery of chemotherapy and i was involved in some of the breast cancer studies that Mm. were used high dose treatment uh thinking that it was going to cure it just like we cured lymphomas or myeloma so it's been sobering to see really how we how we divide different cancers up the Mm. the challenge in the future is you know is to treat each of the to individualize our approach Mm. terrific stuff thank you so much
2: miles you are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia.
1: Sitting directly opposite me at 180 degrees is Dr. Nicola Scar. Sitting a little bit to his right is Professor Miles Prince, and to my left is Nurse Epi Pen, Dr. Nick. I ah, saw. So <laughs> I've gone Russian, haven't, haven't you? Seen uh, you know the Simpsons, Dr. Nick. <laughs> <I'm> Dr. Nick, <laughs> I love that character. In <laughs> fact,
0: that, that's what made me want to do medicine. But more about that in some <laughs> other time. We, uh, we plagiarised that from the Simpsons as my intro on a previous radio station. But shh, don't tell anyone. <laughs> I won't tell anyone.
1: Hey, um, was there a measles outbreak?
0: There was an outbreak singular. <laughs> <laughs> <And our Brooke. laughs> yes, I don't know what the singular <laughs> outbreak is, but uh, there was a bit, there was a bit of uh, there's actually been a bit of infection hysteria in the news recently because mm. there was the measles terror and there was the listeria hysteria, ah. uh, which is still going on. Uh, so to touch on the measles one, which I'm I'm really optimistic is fizzling out because we've only got a few more days for new cases to arrive, um, and it looks as though that's probably not going to happen. Mm. So there was a there was a case of measles picked up um, someone in Dandenong um, had a case of measles um, had an interesting itinerary because this person was linked to Centrelink in Dandenong and then the the Mountain Gate Cricket Club, and then Dan Murphy's in Rowville, And <laughs> The contact they, tracing was amazing. They followed this person all over the place because measles has quite a long incubation period. It's normally about two weeks or so right. before you show symptoms, but it can be a bit longer. Yeah. Um, so they really had to find this person, then see who he might have been in contact with, oh. uh, see if anyone else was going to develop the disease. Uh, but so far, it seems like it's, it's not happening. Now, measles is one of those things which, um, when... I was a kid, mm. I had measles. Dr mm. Mal, you're yeah, probably old it, yeah. enough to have had measles. I'm yeah. seeing a bit of nodding all around. Yeah. I remember lying at home in bed with the fever and mm. the rash. Uh, of course, in, the, in our childhood days, there was no vaccination. There was mm. no way of preventing. Uh, and it was thought of as just one of these diseases you had to get. Mm. Um, but of course, measles is potentially a very severe illness and people do get pneumonia, they do get encephalitis. Mm. Kids mm. die from measles, mm. which is why we have a vaccine to prevent it. Mm. Um, so the chance of anyone turning up with measles now is pretty small, um, but it is a reminder this is a vaccine-preventable disease. Um, we still don't vaccinate 95%, which is our target to get herd immunity. So we, we vaccinate our current vaccination
1: rate is it
0: varies in. suburb to suburb so it's yeah. somewhere between 85 and 90 something percent depending yeah. on where you are but uh, measles is so infectious you only need a very small reservoir of unvaccinated people for it to spread through a population and you need fewer than five percent who are unvaccinated in order to keep the population to stop so, the spread yeah. and the person who had measles i mean i looked at the department of health um
1: website about it uh and I saw all the, the contact tracing in all the different places where, you know, uh, this person went and, you know, where to be uh, concerned. Um, I, had a, I had thought that most cases of measles nowadays were
0: imported mm. from overseas. Was that the case here? It, I think this case was thought not to have been imported, oh, well, which begs the, the question, it? where did it come yeah, from? But we get 20 or 30 cases of measles annually in Victoria, so it does exist Well, so there's a reservoir somewhere of measles? As you say, most of these are imported, but that's the danger of this modern world with the travel, imported is easy.
1: Yeah, as one of my lecturers used to say, it was a 747, which has been one of the uh, biggest Mm -hmm. factors in uh, infectious disease Mm -hmm. recently.
0: But it is a reminder for anyone who's uh, concerned about vaccination, um, measles is so easy to prevent. The vaccine is incredibly effective. Uh, Babies normally have two shots, 12 months and 18 months. That gives you immunity pretty much for life for anyone Uh, and if anyone hasn't had their uh, childhood vaccination never had actual measles go to your gp get the vaccine done because it's incredibly effective incredibly safe and you will never get measles tell us about listeria (laughs) Uh, this was a bit of a shock to me it was actually a patient brought this to my attention because they came in all of a lather with their son both of them had fevers and they said why we've got listeria doctor and i looked at them and said Uh, Tell me why And they said Because we've been eating rock melon and that rocked me because I hadn't heard this story at all. Mm. <laughs> uh, but it turns out it was a quick Google search, which is the joy of having Google on <laughs> your desktop at work. It's a bit sad, isn't it, when the doctor has to resort to Google to find out what on earth's going on. But there we are. Do you actually uh, show the screen to the patient or do you pretend you're doing something else? I, I had no shame here. I said, I haven't heard this story at all. Let's go on Google and have a look. Yeah. So I turned the screen to the patient and there it was. Um, and uh, this is a disease that has actually come into Victoria and to Tasmania from New South Wales, from a, a rock melon farm up in the Riverina. Mm. Um, and it's, it must be devastating for the family who run this farm, because mm-hmm. apparently the farm's very well run, mm. very good hygiene and so on. But this big Listeria, can exist in soil and vegetation. Uh, and has somehow got onto the skin of these rock melons at this particular farm mm. uh, and then through the processing gets into the flesh of the fruit. Mm. And. Uh, listeria is not an infection that should worry fit, healthy people like I'm looking at around this studio mm. here uh, because we pass it off without any trouble at all. Our, our immune systems, which Miles so elegantly described mm. earlier, I'm not sure whether it's the soldiers, the Air Force <laughs> or, the, or the Navy that come and kill listeria, but something does and mm. we don't get sick. But listeria is a dangerous disease for those who are immune, compromised or for the very elderly. And we, we've had a death here in Victoria with this listeria outbreak. Or, or, or pregnant. Really? Uh, pregnant. And so the other group that it's dangerous for is pregnant women and their unborn babies. Oh, right. mm. Hey, um, what's the stuff that pregnant women can't have? I know it's... it's was it cheeses? Is that because of listeria? So the, the, listeria is a bug that lives in all sorts of places. It lives in soil, lives in vegetation, it lives in foods and it, it particularly likes... If you think of the deli counter, if you think of the mayonnaise things <laughs> the, the, if you think yeah. of the soft cheeses, yeah. you think of some of the hams and salamis, the yeah. cooked chicken that 's sitting there um, nothing wrong they 're doing their hygiene standards are fine, but Listeria is a resistant old bug, and it can sit there quite happily again doesn 't matter to those of us who are fit young and healthy, but for particularly for pregnant women, they should avoid those kind of foods. Mm.
1: Is it named after Charles Lister, the guy that uh, developed um, uh, sepsis, a-, a-, a antiseptic technique? I think I'm going to
0: turn that? straight to Miles and see if he knows the answer to that question. Listeria. I have no idea. So we'll I have to, to, we'll have to. I'm going to Google that, that right now. <laughs> um, so, w- w- what are the symptoms? What happens when you get listeria? So, for, again, coming back to it, m- most of us healthy people will not get any symptoms at all. But if if you are frail, elderly, if you're immune compromised. Um the commonest symptoms are ordinary sort of virusy kind of things with yeah. fever, diarrhea, vomiting and that sort of thing. But when it gets severe, it can infect the brain, give you meningitis, it can also infect the heart and give you cardiac problems. Um, and it can kill people as we've discovered this latest outbreak here mm. in Victoria. Mm. Th- in Australia, three people have died. We get these outbreaks worldwide from time to time. There's one going on in South Africa at the moment. The biggest outbreak of listeriosis ever recorded in the world. Nearly a 1,000 people have had it in South Africa. Over 170 have died, and they have been unable so far to find the source of the listeria. You're kidding. Yeah. So so this happens. We've had outbreaks in Canada and the US in the past. Um, So it's a bug that sits around in the community. It's a normal part of our environment and sometimes gets into things that we eat and drink. This is what it can do. Gee, um, and is there? I mean, if you do have it, well, how do you treat it? So it, listeriosis is actually fairly easily treatable with standard antibiotics. And again, most of us who are healthy adults don't need treatment because yeah. we don't get sick. But if people are found to have listeriosis, we can treat it. Now just to be clear <laughs> to be clear about the rock melons, you don't have to go around well, you do have to chuck out your rock melon if you bought it a week ago and it came from New South Wales. Right. And the advice is don't put it in the compost. You've got to chuck it in the bin. Because oh. we actually don't want that rock melon recycled because of the listeria that's in there. So if you're not sure where your rock melon came from, you bought it, and rock melon cantaloupe for some people, cantaloupe, same yeah. thing. Uh, if you're not sure where it came from and you bought it a week or more ago, check it out. Um, all of the rock melon being sold here in Victoria now should be sourced from somewhere other than New South Wales where the outbreak was.
2: So just a question for Professor Miles. After chemotherapy or immuno- immune therapy, how long are you immunosuppressed for? What is there a kind of a ballpark figure or depending on the doses
3: look it, it's it's quite variable the uh because you know people often think of the immune system being something that just can change really quickly that you can do something you can run around the block and your immune system's recharged but in fact you know when you look at it you know going back to the questions about vaccines you know to to vaccinate against polio you know it remember we used to take the little pink spoon and it used to take some years and basically you're training your ed- your immune system uh, so that can take some years and in the same way it can take some years to recover from some treatments. so we're very clever with some of our treatments now that they can be uh, aimed at different parts of the immune system and so the lymphocytes which are the sort of the the, the rock of our immune system and memory can actually take a year or two and some of the active treatments that we get giving antibody treatments can be quite suppressive for you know a year or two sometimes even longer
0: and do you advise your patients on chemotherapy about listeria particularly with yes.
3: yeah, this generally we talk about uh, uh, certain sorts of things funguses uh, Moles, things like uh, that we that people have in their in the gardening. Uh, listeria is rare, rare very rare. Uh, but we do talk about uh, we we often give them some written information about the sorts of things. But listeria is one of those in, for the patients that are susceptible. A lot of uh, patients um, have a quite a robust immune system um, when they when they're going through cancer treatments, and so it's it's not uh, such a risk. What's the? I mean, I'm going to put you uh, people to the test here. What's what, a
1: couple of weeks ago? I got some um, composting soil for my garden, and it said, you know, do not inhale this if you are immunocompromised. I'm thinking, well, hang on, I don't want to inhale it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> immunocompromised. Smoke it, smoke it. Go anywhere
3: near it now. But what's what was that? Do you know what that is? Is that listeria or something? Or? No, that look, it's. Um Look, it is really important to remember we're surrounded by bacteria and bugs yeah. all the time, and yeah. so you know there are funguses um, right. that yeah. are out there, and it's mainly it's mainly spore type funguses, oh, so the mushroom yeah. type things that 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 can sit there, and uh, some are bad. So you'll remember the pigeon droppings in the roof, the, the right. aspergillus <laughs> um, that yeah. can c- carry. There's a few that yeah. we classic ones that we yeah. hear about in medical school. Yeah. So, um, but if your immune system is fine you're okay okay. Um, but you know we you know people who go up plumbers who go up in the roof they should wear a mask because it's the amount of Ah, bacteria and stuff that they can uh, funguses that they can
0: inhale but i think i think dr mal your gut reaction of saying well i I may be immune fine but i still don't want this," uh, is absolutely right i think if we're using particularly any kind of more dry compost uh, it's wise to wear a mask because that's it's loaded with spores and you can ha- inhale those. Now, very briefly, Dr. Nick, we've got about 30 seconds. Um, do you get a
1: lot of people coming into your general practice after these health alerts saying, look, oh, I think I might have measles. Oh, I think I might have listeria. Do these health alerts have that kind of knock-on effect?
0: yes they do yeah. and uh, in my experience people are remarkably sensible about yeah. it they yeah. they hear this stuff they read this stuff and they come in asking the right questions doctors are sometimes a bit anti Dr. Google, because they think mm-hmm. people get misinformation. My mm-hmm. experience, people mostly get very good information and they ask the right questions. And are they reassured by your very reassuring tone? They are so reassured. Yes. yes. All I have to do is fire up Dr. Google and show them how right I am. Fantastic <laughs> stuff. <laughs> you have been listening to Radiotherapy
1: with uh, Nurse EpiPen, our special guest, Professor Miles Prince, uh, and the very reassuring <laughs> Dr. Nicole Oscarami. Dr. Malpractice, catch up with you next week for some more Radiotherapy.